Good afternoon, and welcome to part three of my discussion of the 39 articles. Um, in the first video, I introduced what the 39 articles of religion are for the Anglican Communion, spe specifically the Anglican Church of North America, my province, and went through the first six articles. Um, part two went through uh, up through article 22. Um, ending with the really fun one on purgatory, pardons, worshiping, and adoration. Um, and so now we will uh, hopefully get through the rest of the articles, beginning with Article 23. Um, briefly, I want to recap the last thing I said in the last video about um, how to read Article 22. I said there's two basic orientations to it. One is to see the word Romish uh, the phrase Romish doctrine as referring to all of the things that follow. So anything regarding purgatory pardons, worshiping and adoration of images and relics and invocation of the saints, all that is Romish and therefore should be rejected. Um, this would be the more evangelical um, uh, impulse within Anglicanism. The other more Catholic impulse within Anglicanism would be to agree. Yes, we should not um, believe in purgatory or practice our belief in purgatory or pardons or how we handle images and relics or invocation of the saints in the way that uh, was common in the late medieval church with its abuses, but there are non-Romish ways of doing so, which are at least um, acceptable within the, um, within the Anglican uh, fold. Uh, given the acceptance of Anglo-Catholicism as a legitimate expression of Anglicanism over the past uh, century and a half, I um, think we're safe to say that uh, certainly a belief in or a use of icons um, or asking the saints to pray for us is uh, at least something that we can tolerate. Um, something I, I, I actually practice. So I, um, I have icons, which I venerate. Um, I believe in a sort of purgatory, not the Romish idea of purgatory, but one in which we are uh, purged of our sins and made holy or sanctified. Um, I invoke the saints... I don't ask the saints for anything except to pray for me, um, which I think is acceptable, um, which is quite a bit different than asking the saints to do stuff for you. Um, obviously, God alone is you know able to handle such requests. So, um, okay, so we're going to move on uh, now to Article 23 of Ministering in the Congregation. Um, like I said in the previous videos, what I have pulled up here is a PDF of the Book of Common Prayer, um, the 2019 version uh, used by the Anglican Church of North America. This is part of the last section, um, towards the very end of the section called Documentary Foundations. It includes the 39 articles as well as some other uh, documents uh, pertaining to the Anglican Church. So, Article 23 of Ministering in the Congregation. It is not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. And those we ought to judge uh, lawfully called and sent, which be chosen and called to do this work, to this work by men who have public authority given unto them in the congregation to call and send ministers into the Lord's vineyard. So basically we're not going to ordain anyone to serve um, as a priest or a deacon um, if they have not been called not only called by God, but um, the church acknowledges the call, nor if they've been, nor if they have not been um, lawfully, that is according to church law, ordained. Um, so if you can't just show up one day and say, I'm a priest and start doing priestly things, or I'm a deacon and start doing diaconal things, 
you have to be called um, by the church to the work of the Lord. Um, now, of course, God is the one who does the original calling, um, but the church verifies that call and then consecrates and ordains uh, those whom those who are called. I know it says men in this section. I know there's a debate within Anglicanism on the ordination of women uh, to the diaconate or to the uh, priesthood um, and the episcopate, uh, though I personally am in favor of the ordination of women to all levels of ministry. Um, this is rooted in my conviction about the New Testament uh, and church history. Um, obviously, there's some debate. When it says men, it doesn't. It just means people. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're in a jurisdiction that does not ordain women, then, you know, that's fine. Um, but in my, my diocese, uh, we do ordain women to the diaconate and to the uh, office of the priest. Okay, uh, Article 24 of speaking in the congregation in such a tongue as the people understandeth. It is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understand of the people. Use the vernacular. Don't. I mean, this is like, don't use Latin. I don't think there's anything wrong with a Latin mass or with, um, I don't know, it might be fun if we could resurrect some sort of old English church service or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the liturgy literally means the work of the people. So the work of the people should be in a language that people understand. Duh. Article 25 of the sacraments. The sacraments are ordained of Christ to be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace. God's good will towards us, by which, by the which, by the which he doth work invisibly in us, and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Those five commonly called sacraments, that is to say, confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, and extreme unction, are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel, being such as have grown partly of the corrupt following of the apostles, partly our states of life allowed in the scriptures, but yet have not the like nature of sacraments of the baptism and the Lord's Supper, for they have not any visible sign or ceremony ordained of God. The sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or to be carried about, that they should be duly, we should duly use them. And in such only as worthily receive the same, they have a wholesome effect or operation, but they that receive them unworthily purchase to themselves damnation, as St. Paul saith. Okay, um, so the sacraments. There are two big ones. That would be the Lord's Supper and... Uh, baptism. Uh, they're called sacraments of the gospel because Christ himself instituted them. Um, and then you have the what are called the five either commonly called sacraments or sacramental rites or sometimes dominical sacrament or not sorry or of ecclesial sacraments, sacraments of the church. Um, uh, let's first talk about what he means by what, what the article means by sacrament. So a sacrament is not just a badge or token, it's not just a symbol, uh, but it is a sure witness, an effectual sign of grace. A sign is something that affects what it um, what it uh, what what it signifies. So a stop sign causes you to stop. Okay, I mean I guess you could ignore it, but it causes you to stop. Um, not only does it say stop, but it but it affects what it says, and causes you to stop. In marriage, the statement you know um, you know uh, you are married or whatever I don't remember the formula exactly um, causes the marriage to. Um, the, the ceremony, legally speaking, to take place. Uh, there's a, a mid-century um, semiotics professor, uh, scholar, J.L. Austin, who talks about um, uh, sign acts or word acts, where the judge says um, something like, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so be God. And you, you, know, you swear, and in so doing, you bind yourself. Or when um, 
uh, you'd take an oath, right? Um, something along those lines that the words themselves cause the thing to be. And that's how a, a sacrament works. So in uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, the bread and the wine um, are consecrated and uh, become signs of the body and blood of our Lord. And they are, in fact, signs of that and cause us to receive the body and blood of our Lord. In baptism, we are um, we are covered with water as a way to die to ourselves and rise again with Christ. And the, the baptism actually causes that to occur. It affects that thing that it signifies. Um, and it works invisibly in us, um, but not only does it cause, but it also strengthens and confirms our faith. Um, okay, so there are two sacraments of the gospel, baptism and the supper of the Lord, namely because Christ instituted them. There are five other ceremonies of the church that are more or less sacramental in nature. Um, confirmation um, was originally practiced immediately following baptism was part of the baptismal rite when people were primarily um, adults who were coming to faith. And so you would receive the laying on the hands of the bishop um, and the anointing with the uh, with chrism, with oil. In the Orthodox Church, this is still done. Um, so babies that are baptized are immediately uh, confirmed, um, chrismated. The idea is that with the laying on of hands of the bishop, um, we uh, receive the Holy Spirit for the work of the church penance or absolution or reconciliation, a confession. You confess your sins and are absolved. Um, I don't know why this isn't counted as a dominical sacrament, actually. Um, our Lord institutes it in the Gospel of John, in John 20, when he breathes on the apostles and says, Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you um, retain, they are retained, but whosoever sins that you forgive are forgiven. It seems pretty clear that our Lord gave power to his church to forgive um, to forgive or not forgive sins. Um, holy orders, uh, ordination, is not in the gospel itself, but St. Paul describes it um, in the pastoral epistles, the laying on of hands uh, by those that came before, and they, that, you know, you are hands are laid upon you, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit for the work of a priest, a deacon, or um, a bishop. Matrimony or holy marriage, again, not specifically instituted by our Lord, but certainly mentioned by him. Um, marriage, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, as our Lord says in Matthew, I think it's 18 or 19. Um, okay, so again, God's grace is given to um, faithful Christians who seek to be married. And then, of course, extreme unction. Um, usually we call this today anointing of the sick and the dying. This, of course, is not instituted specifically by our Lord, but again, it's biblical. Um, the epistle of James specifically mentions that if anyone is sick, they should call for the elders of the church to come anoint him with oil for healing. Okay, so though they are not sacraments of the gospel, they are sacramental and have uh, grace attached to them and affect grace in the recipients. Okay, the sacraments are not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon. So this is specifically talking about the, um, the Lord's Supper. Uh, basically, in the late medieval period, you had a, you had a growth of private masses so priests would say mass alone um, and would privately consume the body and blood. Um, sometimes the bread and wine would be preserved and then adored by people, gazed upon, a genuflected to, rather than consumed. And the point of this article is, look, the point of the sacrament is to use it uh, for our grace. It's not to become an object of veneration or worship in itself. I don't really have a huge problem with Eucharistic adoration uh, that is kneeling in the presence of the reserved sacrament. Um, you know, you, the priest consecrates some bread and wine and then puts it aside. So long as it's going to be used um, for the people. And in the Anglican world, priests are not 
permitted to celebrate private masses, uh, you need at least one other person there um, because it is the uh, people of God, the gifts of God for the people of God, um, as the prayer book says, when we come to receive communion. Um, and the sacraments uh, are effective um, on the basis of our faith to some degree. So they don't work apart from um, our faith. They work with our faith. They're not magic. Okay. Um, but there is a way to receive the sacrament in an unworthy manner. St. Paul warns about this in um, 1 Corinthians 11. So if you go forward to receive Holy Eucharist, but you have, you know, a flagrant, unconfessed sin, um, or you're, you know, doing something really terrible, um, which you haven't mentioned or confessed or, you know, have a contrite heart about, then you're drinking and eating damnation onto yourself rather than, um, rather than life. And it is primarily actually because of this belief, this statement of St. Paul that those who, um, those who partake of the sacrament unworthily, uh, heap damnation on themselves that I, I can't buy to what's sometimes called receptionism, which is the idea that only if you have faith, do you receive the body and blood of the Lord? But those without faith, it's just a cracker and juice, uh, or cracker and wine. Sorry, juice. That's my uh, Church of Christ background uh, popping up. Um, I don't think that's true. I think everyone receives the body and blood of the Lord. But some, most, unto, unto salvation, unto grace. Some, unto damnation. Okay, uh, Article 26 of the Unworthiness of the Minister, which hinders not the effect of the sacrament. Although in the visible church the evil be ever mingled with the good, and sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments, Yet forasmuch as they do not the same in their own name, but in Christ, and do minister by his commission and authority, we may use their ministry both in hearing the word of God and in receiving of the sacraments. Neither is the effect of Christ's ordinance taken away by their wickedness, nor the grace of God's gifts diminished from such as by faith and rightly do receive the sacraments ministered unto them, which be effectual, because of Christ's institution and promise, although they be ministered by evil men. Nevertheless, it appertaineth to the discipline of the church that inquiry be made of evil ministers." and that they be accused by those that have knowledge of their offenses, and finally being found guilty by just judgment be deposed. Okay, um, it's really, we're really grateful that the sacraments don't depend on the worthiness of the minister, because if you have a priest um, who is giving you the sacraments, uh, but that priest is you know, secretly a serial killer um, or something crazy, uh, that doesn't make the sacraments invalid, right? You don't have to like find out all the baptisms this priest did and make sure that Everyone gets properly baptized. This is um, an early heresy uh, called Donatism, which stressed that the holiness of the minister was relevant to the effectiveness of the sacraments. Um, but that, that clearly leads to huge problems. The sacraments are done by God through human instruments, and even if those humans are particularly evil, if they are administering the sacraments using proper form and order, they are effective, even even if the minister is bad. Now, that being said, if, if we know about ministers that are sinning or not repentant or not being held accountable for their sins. They should be exposed. Um, in, um, especially in our day and age of a deep awareness of abuse, um, abuse of power, abuse of authority. Um, I think about the uh, sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic church, but also other uh, non-Catholic churches. Um, it's just really important that people keep their eyes open and that the laity hold the clergy accountable. The clergy are not infallible and they should not be viewed as infallible. Um, and they should rightly be questioned and held to held to account. Um, <coughs> okay. Article twenty seven of baptism. Okay, baptism is not only sorry. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, 
or by Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of forgiveness of sin and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Okay, so baptism is not just an outward profession, okay, or a mark of difference. It's not just covenant membership, and that would be the way that Presbyterians tend to talk, nor is it just an outward profession of faith. It tends to be the way Baptists uh, talk about baptism, but rather uh, baptism is the sign of regeneration. That is, remember, a sign is that which affects what it signifies. So baptism is the means by which people move from being uh, rebellious uh, sinners apart from God to being uh, reborn, born anew in the kingdom of God and grafted into the church through the and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, faith is confirmed in baptism and grace is increased by virtue of prayer unto God. Um, this includes baptizing infants and um, I'm not going to get into a whole defense of the baptism of infants, but um, the church has historically baptized infants. The Anglican church retains that practice. And um, we view the baptism as particularly important for regenerating um, those who are regenerating children who um, have a sin nature. Um, of course, no one's going to say that if you're not baptized, you cannot be saved. That's not what we mean. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are generally necessary for salvation, but of course, there are exceptions. What if you get in a wreck on the way to be baptized? You know, do, are you still saved? Sure. Right? God's not stupid. Um, and I think that's a lot of the answers to these questions about how the sacraments work. God's not stupid. Um, but the general means that God has ordained by which people come into Christ and are made uh, one with him is through baptism. Okay, Article 28 of the Lord's Supper. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves, one to another, but rather is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the Supper of the Lord, cannot be proved by Holy Writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the Supper only after an heavenly and spiritual manner, and the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the Supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. Okay, um, so this seems, oh, well, there's a number of things to talk about here. So, again, this is not just a sign of love that Christians ought to have for one another, but rather is a sacrament, is a sign of redemption, where Christ's body and blood are made present to those who receive. Okay, uh, the article specifically denies the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which holds that the um, bread and wine cease to be bread and wine, but become body and blood, even though they look, taste, smell like bread and wine. The, um, if you know your Aristotelian philosophy, metaphysics, the substance is changed into body and blood, the, the accidents of bread and wine remain. Um, they deny this because it's not in Scripture, and it's really not how a sacrament works. Sacraments um, are a sign that, that affect what they signify. The stop sign doesn't cease to be a stop sign because it commands you to stop. Um, it, it remains a sign. And our, you know, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, is the bread that we eat, um, is the body that we eat not a partaking in the 
sorry, is the bread that we eat not a partaking in the body of Christ and the, and the wine that we drink not a partaking in the, in the blood of Christ? Okay, so it remains both bread and body. It becomes both bread and body, uh, becomes blood and wine. I think the Lutheran idea here is really clear um, that the body and blood of our Lord is within, under, and among the creatures of bread and wine. So somehow, mysteriously, Christ's body and blood are actually present in the bread and the wine which we consume. Um, and transubstantiation leads to all kinds of superstitions. And again, this uh, we already talked about the late medieval tendency to adore the sacrament, carry the sacrament around, use it as a good luck charm, that kind of thing. All right, so then it goes on to say, the body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after heavenly and spiritual manner. Um, there's a danger here of reading this as not really, okay? It's just heavenly and spiritual, not, not actual. Um, but St. Paul uses that word spiritual to refer to the resurrection body. It's a spiritual body that we have. Um, it doesn't mean that it is not material, okay? Spiritual is not opposed to material. Uh, material uh, is opposed to, um, to abstract, um, but is not opposed to spiritual. Um, the idea here is that, no, there's not like pieces of Jesus's like fingers or something uh, that we're consuming or not like you know, you couldn't do a test on the wine to see what kind of, what blood type Jesus had. And that's not what we're talking about. But the bread and the wine are, the, the body and blood are actually truly present in a heavenly and spiritual manner. That's probably more significant than a carnal and, and physical, um, physical manner. And the means by which we feast on Christ is by faith. So without faith, you're not feasting on, uh, on Christ. Um, Okay, Article 29. Of the wicked which eat not the body of Christ in the use of the Lord's Supper. The wicked and such as to, as be void of a lively faith, although they do carnally and physically press with their teeth, as St. Augustine saith, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. Yet in no wise are they partakers of Christ, but rather to their condemnation do eat and drink the sign of, or sacrament of so great a thing. Okay, this is not denying that the wicked or those who come without faith are actually truly consuming Christ's body and blood, they are not, they're just not partaking of Christ. So the sign is a sign of judgment and damnation on them, not a sign of, of faith. Um, and that was clarified earlier in article, uh, article 26, where St. Paul, or sorry, article 25, where St. Paul is quoted as saying that they receive them unworthily and they purchase themselves damnation. Okay. Okay. Uh, article 30 of both kinds, the cup of the Lord is not to be denied to the lay people for both parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandment ought to be ministered to all Christian men alike. Jesus says to his disciples um, in the Last Supper, take, eat, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink, this wine is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Uh, drink this in remembrance of me. Okay, The bread and the wine are to be given to everybody, not just the bread, which was a common practice in the late medieval Catholic Church to only give um, the, the bread to the laity and not the wine. I think there was some worry about the wine spilling and what happens if Jesus' blood gets all over the floor and that kind of thing. Article 31 of the one oblation of Christ finished upon the cross. The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone, wherefore the sacrifices of masses in the which... It was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to every missioner of pain of, or guilt, 
or blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. In the late medieval Catholic Church, um, the language around what was going on in the Mass was that the priest was offering Christ as a sacrifice, for a propitiatory sacrifice for the people. This is clearly an error. Um, the priest does not offer the sacrament, the bread and the wine, as a propitiatory sacrifice. I forget what I was saying, but... Um, oh yeah, the, the priest does not offer the bread and the wine as a sacrifice in the sense of propitiating uh, God. That happened on the cross once, um, and Christ is raised again, so that doesn't happen. But it is the, um, he is offering the, in the sense of offering um, a sacrifice of thanks and praise, right? Uh, where we together with the priests offer our thanks and praise for the one sacrifice that was accomplished at Calvary. Article 32 of the marriage of priests, bishops, priests, and deacons are not commanded by God's law, either to vow the estate of a single life or to abstain from marriage. Therefore, it is lawful for them and as for all other Christian men to marry at their own discretion as they shall judge the same to serve better to godliness. It was a, the Catholic Church has never said that it's God's will that priests don't marry. They've just, it's been a disciplinary feature of uh, Catholicism for about a thousand years now. Um, in the East, priests are free to marry, although um, monks are not, of course, and bishops are drawn from the order of monks rather than from the parish priests. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's, if you have the work of the kingdom to do, it's better not to marry because in marrying you, um, have distractions, and you're distracted from the work of God by having to care for a wife or, or whatever, or care for a husband. Um, um, but that the uh, work of God can be better accomplished if you're single. But that doesn't mean that everyone called to the work of the kingdom should be single. Um, people are free to marry. I mean, St. Peter, for goodness sake, was married as it was. But so legend tells us other of the apostles. And though St. Paul himself was not married, nor was Christ, it's never been a problem for deacons, priests, and uh, bishops to be married um, in the um, in an in a in a theological sense. It's just been a matter of discipline. So in the Anglican Church, everyone can get married. It's fine. Article thirty three: If excommunication of persons, how they are to be avoided? That person which by open denunciation of the church is rightly cut off from the unity of the church and excommunicated ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful. And as he then publican until he openly reconciled by penance received into the, the church by a judge that hath authority thereunto. Okay, the idea is if you've excommunicated someone, that is, you've for whatever reason enacted a church canonical penalty against someone and said you may no longer present yourself for the sacraments, um, then then they shouldn't partake of the sacraments until they've been reconciled with the with the church. I don't think this happens a lot, or at least not anymore. Um, in our secular world, there's not a lot of people that would like to be in church, um, but don't, the one, the one to partake in the sacraments, but also despise the church. That may have happened in the past when everyone and their mom was a Christian. Today, pretty much, if you don't want to be there, you're not going to be there. Article 34 of the Traditions of the Church. It is not necessary that traditions and ceremonies be in all places one and utterly like, for at all times they have been diverse and may be changed according to the diversities of countries, times, and men's manners. So that nothing be ordained against God's word. Whosoever, through his private judgment, willingly and purposely doth openly break the traditions and ceremonies of the church, which be not repugnant to the word of God, and be ordained and approved by common authority, ought to be rebuked openly, that others may fear to do the like. As he that offendeth against the common order of the church, and hurteth the authority of the magistrate, and woundeth the conscience of the weak brethren. Every particular or national church hath authority to ordain, change, and abolish ceremonies or rites of the church, ordained only by man's authority, so that all things be done to edify. All right, so basically, not everyone has to follow the same liturgy and church service style. 
I mean, it can depend, it can change depending on the province or the bishop or whatever. Um, no one should openly, you know, if you're going to a church that does things in a certain way, say you go to a church that's more low church, like I do, where the priests don't wear the chasuble, um, they didn't just wear a stole over the clericals um, when celebrating the Eucharist, um, or where we have praise and worship music rather than, you know, chanting the Psalms or something. It would be not great of me to be loud in public about why I think that's wrong and stupid. Similarly, if I were in a high church context where everything was always chanted, there was incense, the priests were vested to the hilt, um, it would be wrong of me to make a big stink about that. Um, you know, be respectful. There's no single way to worship God, though we should have an order for worship and be orderly in our worship. Scripture never specifies exactly what that looks like for the church. Um, and to make a big deal out of it would be to make a severe error. Article 35 of the homilies, the second book of homilies, the several titles whereof we have joined under this article, doth contain a godly and wholesome doctrine and necessary for the, these times as doth the former book of homilies, which were set forth in the time of Edward VI. And therefore we judge them to be read in churches by the ministers diligently and distinctly that they may be understanded of the people. Um, and then we have the names of the homilies, which I will not read here. But basically... One of the things that Thomas Cranmer did as part of the Reformation in England is he was very interested in the priests being far more educated, so they were capable of actually preaching and teaching the Word of God. Uh, but until such a time as the priests were properly educated enough to do so, they may have just needed to read one of these pre-written sermons. Um, and they're all very good. Highly recommend them. So feel free to take a look if you'd be curious. Article 36 of Consecration of Bishops and Ministers. The Book of Consecration of Archbishops and Bishops and of Ordering of Priests and Deacons, lately set forth in the time of Edward VI, and confirmed at the same time by authority of Parliament, doth contain all things necessary to such consecration and ordering, neither hath it anything that of itself is superstitious and ungodly, and therefore whosoever are consecrated or ordered according to the rights of that book, since the second year therefore named King Edward unto this time or hereafter shall be consecrated or ordered according to the same rights, we decree all such to be rightly, orderly, and lawfully consecrated and ordered. Okay, so if your ordination was done under the new stuff that was come up with in the 16th century, new ordinal, it's fine. Um, basically, this is saying anyone that is ordained according to the rites and ceremonies of the Church of England is validly ordained. Article 37 of the Civil Magistrates. The King's Majesty hath the chief power in this realm of England and other his dominions, under whom the chief government of all the states of this realm whether they be ecclesiastical or civil in all causes, doth appertain and is not nor ought to be subject to any foreign jurisdiction. Wherefore, or where we attribute to the king's majesty the chief government, by which titles we understand the minds of some slanderous folks to be offended, we give not to our princes the ministering either of God's word or of the sacraments, the which thing of the injunctions also lately set forth by Elizabeth our queen, do most plainly testify, but that the only prerogative which we see to have been given always to all godly princes and holy scriptures by God himself, that is, they should rule all the states in, decree, in degrees committed to their charge by God, whether they be ecclesiastical or temporal, and restrain with the civil sword the stubborn and evildoers. The bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in the realm of England. The laws of the realm may punish Christian men with death for heinous and grievous offenses. It is lawful for Christian men at the commandment of the magistrate to wear weapons and serve in the wars. Okay, the king, you know, the lawful, basically, the implication of this is the lawful government of the realm in which you find yourself is the lawful government instituted by God, permitted by God. St. Paul says as much in Romans 13. And the king, the government, the president, the whatever you've got in your country, um, obey the law. Do what they say, um, as long as it's agreeable to 
to, to Holy Scripture. Um, but the king, the government is not permitted to take over the church, to run the church, to administer the sacraments, to preach God's word, even in the established Church of England. The king, the government, the secular rulers had no authority in church matters to run the church. That was the province of the bishops, even if they had a say in the selection of the um, archbishops of York and of Canterbury. Um, the Bishop of Rome is not the head of the church in England, never was, even if the English went along with Rome for some time. It is not now. The Bishop of Rome has no particular authority um, over bishops in other realms. Um, this goes on to say that the laws of the realm may justly punish Christian men with death if they've committed heinous and grievous offenses. Um, okay, so the death penalty is permissible, and uh, we can debate that some other time. Uh, and, is, and Christians may serve in the army, in the armed forces, again, presumably if the war is a just one, which, again, we're not going to get into that discussion right now either. Okay, Article 38 of Christian men's goods, which are not common. The riches and goods of Christians are not common as touching the right, title, and possession of the same. A certain Anabaptist who falsely boasts, notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesseth, possesseth liberally to give alms to the poor according to his ability. Okay, so whereas in the book of Acts it is said that the early Christians held all things in common um, and that uh, the proceeds from the sale of land were used to care for anyone who had need, um, that's not how society currently operates where people own private property. Um, the Anabaptists, uh, the part of the Radical Reformation that became the Amish um, in the Mennonites later, uh, had this notion that um, all the all that was owned by Christians was held in common. Um, and that is true in certain situations, like monks uh, don't ever own private property. Um, but the implication of this for today is that Christians should give liberally of the things they have. You should always be providing for those in need. Don't hold on to your stuff. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about caring for those in need. And finally, our final article, Article 39 of A Christian Man's Oath. As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden, Christian men by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his apostle, so we judge that Christian religion doth not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requireth in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching in justice, judgment, and truth. Jesus says, do not take oaths, um, rather let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, and that is true in private relations. Like I shouldn't, if I'm trying to convince someone that I'm telling the truth, swear on um, the earth for it is the Lord's footstool or on um, the heavens for it is God's throne um, or on creation or on the lives of my children or anything like that. I should not just, I should not take an oath lightly. Um but if the civil magistrate requires the swearing of an oath for civil proceedings, um, say in a court of law, I'm supposed to swear an oath to um, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and I'm testifying in, say, a murder case, um, that it's permissible to do so for judicial reasons, just not for um, private relations. Well, uh, that is part three of our discussion of the 39 Articles. Uh, if you've made it this far, you deserve a cookie. Thanks for um, joining me on this on this discussion, sort of off the cuff, my thoughts on these. I'm happy to chat about them with anyone interested. You can always uh, email me at gregory.c.jeffers at gmail.com if you are interested. And um, have a blessed day. Bye.